Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Welcome to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving Chesapeake Bay. Tim Hickey's with me this afternoon. Last time Tim and I saw each other, we were in the green room in Richmond about to give our TEDx talks. And uh, Tim did his on Tangier Island Oyster Company, which is what we want to talk about, at least primarily today. And I did mine on the Brock Center, our building in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Uh, if anybody wants to hear either Tim or me from, I was I guess about two years ago, two and a half years ago, TEDx RVA for TEDx Richmond, Virginia. Check us out. Welcome, Tim. Will, thanks a lot for having me here today. It's great to have you. Tim is a Richmond native, lives in Washington with his wife and children, a writer, an entrepreneur, and co-founder or founder of the Tangier Island Oyster Company. That's Tell right. Tell us what that is. Tangier Island Oyster Company is first and foremost an oyster company. Uh, I think we are producing some of the best oysters that come out of this region. Uh, we've been at it now. This is really our, our first year of full-scale online production, though we've been at the project for going on three years. Um, this was, I, I should mention my my partner in this, Craig Surrow, who came on with me uh, as we recognized something valuable uh, in Tangier Island, something that uh, we wanted to support and encourage. And Craig and I went out there, uh, I would say, for the first time five years ago. It's a great story. I want to come back a little bit more to how you got started and uh, some aspects of the early days. But just give us a, a basic understanding. You're obviously growing oysters, working with locals. How many oysters, and you're working in floats. There are a couple of different ways to grow oysters. I believe you all are working with float oysters. Right. I think that is the most distinctive and interesting thing about the way we're approaching it, which is we're raising them on the top water. So... These are in floating cages out in the open water, uh, strung on lines, and they are there at the top of the water column. This is the sweet spot of the nutrients for an oyster feeding. And this year we would like to be producing a true million oysters. Holy mackerel. It sounds like a lot, but I they know. go quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Especially uh, if you or I are eating them. That is right. <laughs> takes no time at all. Yeah. So, uh, let's see. They, they start off uh, as the tiniest grain of sand. That is the spat of the oyster. Where uh, are you getting your spat? Spat it comes from a variety of sources. There are a few uh, regionally. Um, oyster Seed Holding Company is the one that we primarily work with. They're all of the same variety. They're all uh, the Virginicus. And Native Chesapeake Bay oyster. That's right. That's critical to the operation. Um, and they start at that tiny size. Uh, we raise them or upwell them in more or less a nursery until they're of a size that they can go into a bag 
which then goes into the cage, which then goes out into the open top water. So that's probably when, what, they're about the size of your thumbnail, something like that? That's about right. Mm -hmm. So you've got, um, I think, a three-millimeter oyster can go into a bag, and that's when it first gets its time in the bay. And from there, you know, we have, a, um, I think, a full period of time of, of nine months, maybe a year. Uh, our waters are warm. It depends on all kinds of variables. But I think you could go from that grain of sand to a market oyster in the process of 12 months. That that's, seems very fast to a lot of people, I'm sure. And one of the reasons you're getting that quick growth is you're using so-called triploid oysters, I'm sure that don't put any energy into reproduction. They're basically neutered. That's exactly right. That's how it works. So all their energy goes into creating a better, more delicious oyster. And that means you also uh, are happy to eat them 12 months a year because they're not putting that energy into reproduction in the summer, which makes the, the, the wild oyster sort of stringy and not very meaty. Right. I, I always feel like it's an important thing to mention that the months with R, uh, that has traditionally been because those are the spawning months for an oyster. Uh, that is when they put their effort into reproduction. But because they are not reproducing, because this is an oyster that is focused entirely on making itself more delicious, that... It is uh, consistent throughout the 12 months. Right. Or the months without an R is when they're putting into That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, now, to get a million oysters, what do you think in terms of the number of floats? Well, let's see. I think we have about 300 floats for a million oysters. Right. And that, um, if the mortality rate, as advertised, usually is 50%. And in our experience, it's nothing like that. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because of the conditions of where we are um, and the way that they're handled. But when we put in a million oysters, we can expect nearly a million oysters to come out of that, ready to be. I want to come back with all sorts of questions about production, marketing, shipping, where you, where you uh, market them. But talk a little bit, because I've heard some of the story, talk a little bit about how you and Craig got started at Tangier. Right, that is the, uh, the most interesting feature of this, of this enterprise, I think. Um, Tangier Island is a remote and isolated place. Uh, it is out there in the absolute middle of the Chesapeake Bay, accessible by plane, by boat, and nothing else. And when Craig and I went out there those years ago, um, I, did, I had heard about it all my life, did not know quite what to expect from it. And I came away uh, admiring and respecting Tangier far more than I had expected. And I knew that I wanted to pay more attention to Tangier uh, in some way. But it seemed to be, to, to me, a culture in decline. That was the sort of theme of people you talk to, losing population, facing difficulties, um, sustaining their only economy, which is crabbing. Uh, you know, some ancillary stuff with, with wild oyster harvests some fishing here and there, but it's crabs and crabs soft shell crabs. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And... Because it had a long history of being one of the greatest 
oyster-producing sounds on the bay. Tangier sound. It's Tangier sound. It made sense to me that now that aquaculture was available to everybody, that they should be producing what would be the greatest oyster in the world, uh, if, if I can say that, and I feel that I can at this point, uh, then it was a matter of an adjustment really psychologically for watermen who had been doing this exclusively for 400 years. Wild um, harvest of crabs, fish. Oysters, uh, shellfish. And right? that is it. There's yeah. nothing else on Tangier. These are watermen and, and their support systems. And the, the conversion was going to be from the hunter-gatherer mentality of, of a waterman who goes out, finds what he can find, finds some excitement in that discovery, knows where his traps are, how to replace them, how to attract more crabs, that kind of thing, to more of a farming mentality. And that was the greatest obstacle in, in talking watermen into how this could be done. This is aquaculture. This is not hunting and gathering. So local Tangiermen are certainly part of, central to your operation. That is uh, the overall goal is to, if you're going to revitalize Tangier Island, it, it must begin with, with Tangiermen and the people there. And to ask them to reconsider the way that they've been doing things for all these years and put their energy and resources and expertise, knowledge into the oyster operation. Um, the advantages there are that they are arguably the best watermen in the world. They, they know the tides, they know their boats, they know the weather, they know the knots, they know everything about how one might survive on the water and this was a matter of sort of retrofitting their their <laughs> lives to aquaculture how many uh tangiermen are, are in your employ in as part of the company so th there are a few stalwarts uh that carry the company entirely on their shoulders so this is um there's tracy and trina moore uh, they are a husband and wife team Tracy is a lifelong waterman, and his wife Trina is the high school math teacher at the combined school out there. And they are the ones responsible for uh, perfecting the process. They uh, put all the time in, all the effort. They know what they're doing. They have fully converted. Uh, Tracy gave up his fishing enterprise there and came on to oystering full scale. And then there's Alan Parks. Alan Parks is uh, probably about 39 years old. He's a father of one, and he is a fourth-generation waterman and tangierman. And Alan is the hardest-working fellow that I know. Longtime friend of CBF. Is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. I am glad to hear that. And uh, you, as you probably know, we have an education center on Tangier or on the little island, Port Isabel, right adjacent to Tangier. That's right. We often envy that property. <laughs> Beautiful place. <laughs> but come over and raise some oysters there. So, so keep going. And in terms of 
uh, shoreside facilities, water facilities? Are there other parts of the community that are engaged as well? Well, the goal is to then build in the oyster aquaculture into the identity of the town of Tangier Island. Uh, they've foremost been known as a, a crabbing culture. Uh, I see their future as being an oyster uh, community. And the more that we engage the local population, the more jobs we provide, the more income that we provide, then the more that that goal is realized. So, yes, um, we're still early in the game here, I believe. Uh, this is not a short-term project. This is a major long-term investment, a long haul. And I, I could conceivably envision a time where most of the island, or, or at least a significant portion of the island, is involved in production of oysters mm -hmm. because they've already been recognized as premier oysters coming out of the bay. Uh, chefs around the East Coast and beyond have said this is the best oyster and this is the one they want. So if I could have one real aspiration, it would be to take that crab on the uh, iconic water tower that they have out there and replace <laughs> it with an oyster. Then this would mean that we're making that transition because I think it's essential to their survival. Uh, and that is the ultimate goal of this operation, is make Tangier relevant, make it survive, uh, and and continue and secure its place in, in our culture. You've really, you, you and Craig and the other, you've fallen in love with Tangier and their culture. And There is nothing else yeah. that I recognize this close to the mainland like Tangier Island oysters uh, and, and like the culture that is Tangier. I mean, I live in Washington, D.C., and when I went out there the first time, it presented itself as this total counterpoint to life as I experience it in downtown D.C. Um, what do they call D.C.? 20 square miles surrounded by reality or something like that. <laughs> and, and you could make a pretty decent case that that is also Tangier's uh, situation because they are a few square miles surrounded by the rest of the mainstream culture. And they don't, uh, they're not resistant to the culture. It's just sort of a competing model mm -hmm. of how one might wish to exist. So they have a different priorities. Uh, they have a different value system. Um, you, one of the most appealing things about it is that there is no cell phone service out there. So when you go out, you know, your phone off or on is inoperable. And you are there in the moment, in the present of Tangier Island. There's nothing else going on. Uh, and that is a fascinating thing to walk around what is downtown Tangier, <laughs> and there's not a soul staring at his screen as he walks around the streets. People are focused on their lives and what they're doing. And, um, you know, it, it is also in no way backward. Uh, they're aware of, of mainstream culture, participate in it. 
it is just a different model, mm-hmm. you know, a different way of living. And when I go out there, I, I feel that that they're getting a lot of things right that I admire, that I respect, and uh, makes me appreciate it. And especially as I come back home, especially as I arrive back in D.C. Uh, and think about their priorities. It, it's one of the, um, you know, the one of the virtues of travel is that you see yourself uh, from a different perspective. You you can reassess, and the fact that we can go just a few miles off the coast, and then I come back, and it provides that level. Of, of, of insight to me is nearly miraculous. Yeah, as you, when you think about it, it's what, I think something like 30 miles as the crow flies from D.C., so it's very close. And it to me, it, it, Tangier it is, is really the epitome of, of what you know, sort of think of as the island culture and self-sufficient, um, separated, um, very tight, close-knit, tight-knit community. Uh, come back to, to, to the nuts and bolts. I'm just always so curious. Uh, how many floats are you tending, and what's what are some of the challenges of having those floats in the water? The so we're we're right at three hundred floats for the million oysters. The challenge you would suppose that you could put them out and stake them in and let them do their work, and that's a very appealing concept. But, but not it, true. <laughs> it's never the case with anything that I've found that is worthwhile. No, it requires constant effort and maintenance, and that's where Tracy and Trina Moore and Alan Parks you know, have, have perfected the process. They know that they've got to go out there, and as those oysters grow and develop, you've got to bring them out of their bags and redistribute them so that they reach a proper density in that bag. And that allows for them to grow, uh, but also dense enough that they're bumping up against each other. That's that's the real um, benefit of being out there in that open top water is that they are constantly getting beaten up. So it is a 24-hour-a-day rock tumbler that is cracking off the edges of the oyster, redeveloping them. And as those edges get knocked off, they put their growth into the deepness of their size. And that's why they have that distinctive look. Deep cup. The deep cup that everybody is after, deep cup meaning only that there is more there to that oyster, more meat. And, And the like with many agricultural products, the oyster is kind of an expression of its locality, you know, its flavor, its texture, it all comes from where it grows. Um, Traditionally, wines have talked about their terroir, meaning where they are located on the earth. This is considered a miroir where they are located in the water, and that has everything to do with weather with nutrients, with the way that they're handled and treated. So ours look different and taste different because they're in a place like there isn't anywhere else on earth. 
They're little baby Tangier men and women. <laughs> That's right. They're raised uh, the same way, with the same principles. Uh, do, do you harvest at, at one time, or is the harvest sequential around the, the calendar? It is so you're constant. shipping. You're shipping constantly every and week, couple times a week. Where do you ship to, and what what are some of your best markets? Okay, so they come over uh, typically into Reedville on the west coast, Reedville, Virginia. So you're bringing them onto the western shore, right? Yeah. And and each one of those, um, each one of those movements requires a, a tangierman, and that's part of the the local economy stimulus you know that if we need to get them from the island over to reedville then that's going to require somebody to boat them over there that's a job when it arrives on in reedville it needs to be picked up and handled and typically by somebody local to that area on the east coast it goes over to chrisfield maryland and from there those are our distribution points I see us as being a largely regional oyster. I mm. like the concept. We don't have a great number of oysters. We can sell out any day of the week mm. regionally. Mm. We have done uh, more prestigious plays like Grand Central Oyster Bar right. in New York because that's important and not lost on the Tangierman when I'm able to say the oyster you picked up this morning, it's being eaten in Manhattan, you know, tonight. Builds the brand, helps with marketing. And, and I think, um, makes the people on Tangier feel relevant to the larger culture. I mean, that's one of their concerns is that isolation is removing them from what's going on. They, that, that there is a connection to Manhattan within 24 hours of their bringing it out of the water, that's meaningful. Who, who is there a middleman purchaser or are you selling direct to bars and restaurants? And the, the, Both. Um, the more direct, the better in my mind. Right. Um, if there have been occasions where, uh, let's see, there's a great restaurant in Baltimore called Woodbury Kitchen. Know it well. Okay. And so you, you maybe know Spike Jurdy. I do. And, his philosophy is perfectly aligned with ours, um, that, that we need to be regional, we need to be local, we need to be direct, fresh, that we have resources surrounding us that we don't always pay attention to. And there's no reason to be flying anything in. There's no reason to be shipping all over the country. And so it was almost a year ago that that, that restaurant did a beautiful featured Tangier night. And I went out to the island, I put the bags on the boat, I brought them over, I put them in the back of, of a truck with coolers and brought them straight to the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And they you know, pulled them out of the ice at that moment and took them straight into their walk-in kitchen with a friend's kid who was helping me out. Doesn't get and much better than that. That seemed ideal. I mean, if I could do that every day, you know, we would be fulfilling the potential and mission of Tangier Island Oyster Company. And he recognized it, and and I should add that as I was unloading, there were other people there pulling out fish, pulling out mm. flour, anything else that they had harvested regionally, going right into that kitchen. Yeah. And that was inspirational. And the fact that he and that restaurant are so successful and delicious and wonderful, it it 
makes one aware that, that this is how it ought to be done. That's yeah. That's that spikes signature uh, farm to table, um, Tangier Island to table. Exactly you can take right. It right on down. And that's the most beautiful. And you feel that you've just reached the perfect moment when that's the way it operates. To the, get go ahead. Go oh, after you. Uh, then uh, that's not always the case. There is a seafood purveyor in Hampton, Virginia, uh, Sam Rust. And Sam Rust is our middleman. And they got right away from the beginning what we're after with Tangier Island Oyster Company. And they have seafood from all over the world, a gorgeous facility there. And they take it and get it out anywhere that seafood needs to go. A massive operation. But they recognize the vitality of a small operation being um, vital to uh, to the local economy. That that's true to their mission. That's how they started out. They are a, they started as a small business, and they recognize that they would like to be doing business with people like us. So they will pick up uh, our oysters in Crisfield. They'll take them straight to their facility in Hampton, and from there. They're distributed to a variety of restaurants that their sales force is on. Hmm. Uh, over the last couple of years, you, you've undoubtedly had some interesting experiences. Um, what have been, what's, what's a, a particularly a unique experience? What was a, a tough spot or something that worked really well? Or I remember one winter when you lost a few floats. <laughs> yeah, that was, that's the, the obvious days. one. Before our first harvest, uh, once we had all the gear, all the equipment, and all the oysters in, we had that 50-year storm uh, that, more, that froze the bay. And that was unforeseeable as far as I could understand it. Not by the Tangiermen, who know far more than I do. Not by anybody else in the area. And we lost everything. That was horrific. I, I don't even like to think about it or talk about it, but here we are. Uh, I, I can talk about it now because we recovered from it. Uh, but everything went away. And, and we helped you find some of those You photos. guys were marvelous along with the solidarity of, of the rest of the watermen and bay community. I mean, we had stuff turning up. They were spread all over. Outer Banks, North Carolina. I expected to. I, I, tracked, I did not know that. Yes, really? Yep. Came out of like Kerala. Uh, <laughs> I expected to get a call from Spain because I followed <laughs> the, the tides as they went to the east and... Uh, and that was, you know, really a difficult time because we were just getting going and we had just you know, won the trust and faith of Tangierman, but we were all kind of culpable in what had happened. You know, we didn't expect it. We didn't anticipate it. We didn't prepare for it, most importantly, and it all went away. Well, one, one rule that we all know that is inviolate is Mother Nature's in charge. <laughs> Which is an important lesson for me I, as somebody who previously had never gotten up and checked the weather forecast because I was indifferent to it. You know, umbrella maybe, but my life was mostly taking place at a desk at a computer. And the idea that Mother Nature had a vote in this too was astonishing and eye-opening to me that now I needed to start paying attention to this stuff. And that is 
one of the features of farming, which is what we're in. You cannot ignore that. Uh, and and the, the Tangiermen were so philosophical about it because they've been doing this, you know, it's almost genetic. They say, yeah, you know, you win some, lose some, uh, things come <laughs> well, around. That's the nature of commercial fishing. Right. And it's truly. I mean, you have to be philosophical. And I, I have tried to apply that principle in other ways <laughs> in my life. But to talk to them at that moment, now they're like, yeah, this is a bad thing, but we're going to recover. Uh, we always do. And... It did require us to take all the capital that we had set aside for expansion and put it back into operations, and that set us back uh, a year, more or less. But an important lesson, uh, I will try to see it as, as an important piece of experience that we've learned from. Do you have a uh, target for expansion, or are you going to take it one year at a time? I think it has to be one year at a time uh, because we're still feeling our way. Uh, we do what we do right now. We do it well and we do it right. And that's why I'm reluctant to grow too big too quickly. Um, I want to make sure that we've mastered the things that we've set out to do in that season. And you get, you know, one chance every couple months to reconsider your operations. But if we can produce the greatest million oysters that are coming out of the East Coast, if not the world, I'm satisfied with that. I think that fulfills the mission of making the Tangier Island oyster foremost among all oysters. It will draw attention to the island it will make the island relevant. It will make the company profitable. All of those things seem within reach with that million oysters. So I would say let's talk in a year or two years and let's see how those million oysters win. And then, uh, yeah, I think there is room for expansion. There's this fantastic workforce out there. And it's harder and harder, as you know, to get a, a job as a waterman. And if I could keep some of that younger generation on the island, if I could secure the island a little bit um, more deeply, then, then you know, we can look into growing the oysters. Well, Tim Hickey, I am so grateful for a couple of reasons, many reasons. One, I, I love Tangier Island. And anything you, know, you all can do to contribute to its success and thriving in the future, that's great. Second, I love to eat oysters. I, I, it's one of my favorites of all seafoods. You know, third, uh, oysters help filter the water. So every oyster in the bay is doing its part to make the bay a little bit cleaner. That's great news. And I just am so impressed with the entrepreneurship and uh, helping the Tangiermen uh, make a, you know, continue to, to, to make a living off the water, but in a new and different way. And uh, well, that is well, well done. Thank you very much. Well, that is worth talking about for just a second of the somewhere, the, the position that Tangier Island is in because of climate change. Uh, I don't know if you, I'm, I'm sure you had read it, uh, the New York Times Magazine did that cover story 
titled, Should the United States Save Tangier Island from Oblivion? Yes. And that, that was pretty much the same question that Craig and I were asking uh, a couple of years earlier. And the Times' conclusion was maybe not. And, and our conclusion was certainly that it is more valuable than we recognize right now for all of the cultural elements that I thought of, that I mentioned earlier. But Tangier is ground zero for climate change. If sea levels rise, the, the Times predicted that it'd be wiped out in 50 years. Uh, I think that Tangiermen would say otherwise. Uh, they do. They'll, they'll live on houseboats if they need to out there. Survivors. They are absolute survivors, but they are not reactionary in that sense, old sense of the word. They are adaptable. Yeah, clearly, they went from hunter-gatherers to farmers. They recognize that their position is tenuous and that they've got to make moves to make themselves viable into the future. And I see this as exactly that piece that, that they were missing, that if they, if they can't continue crabbing at the rate that they are, if they can't dredge for wild oysters like they have been, then this is part of that solution, and it is an adaptive move towards accommodating whatever climate change might bring. I, you know, they have nothing to do with climate change on Tangier Island. Their uh, footprint is, is so insignificant, but they will feel the effects before anybody else. And the fact that they're doing something that filters the bay, restores the bay in that way, uh, and is a responsible direct food source, all of this seems to me incredibly admirable and that it, Tangier Island to some people can seem like a, um, a nostalgic place, but uh, it is not that. You know, they don't do things like the rest of the modern uh, culture. But it is forward-looking in this way, that they have to pay attention to climate change and to their livelihoods long before anybody else is going to have to. And they're making the adjustments and accommodations, and I find that to be a very beautiful thing. Something we can all learn from. That's a great way to end it. Tim Hickey, Tangier Island Oyster Company, thank you very, very much. This is Will Baker, Chesapeake Bay Foundation, our bi-weekly, every two weeks podcast, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. Tim, we're going to have you back in a year or two and we'll check in. Thanks very much, Will. Thanks, Tim. <laughs>